introduction. I'm a little bit embarrassed. Um, so actually, today's today's talk is to some extent related to my dissertation, and I so. Um, but it's not actually it's not actually my dissertation. In fact, the motivation for this project actually was because of problems that I when I that I had when I was writing my dissertation that I wanted to come back to. So I think like I think like all of us, I think for those of you who have have written your dissertations, like when you're going about it, you put some band-aids on and you kind of move past and you always wanted to get back and explore those the sort of tear off those band-aids and see what would happen. And so for me, the I had when I was writing my dissertation, which was about foreign direct investment and provincial autonomy, I was looking at the relationship between provincial governments and the central government. And when I when I was doing this, I had this inconvenient problem that Vietnam, over the time period that was I was studying, kept on creating more provinces. So between 1990 and um, and 2004, they actually created 24 new provinces, so like a 60% increase. So when I was writing my dissertation, what I what I tried to do, sort of methodologically, to deal with this problem was I didn't I didn't want to explore the reasons for the creation of new provinces. So I just went back and I recreated what would the province have looked like at at its original district. So I went and carved up the original data back to the original districts. The, so that and and I but I always wanted to kind of open up and let this sort of provincial creation process be part of my thinking, and. The other issue that I dealt with that when I was writing my dissertation is, for the most part, I had a chapter on central politics in Vietnam, but I never really talked about, I, I basically looked at the central government in Vietnam kind of as a monolithic unit. And I always wanted to break open that black box and look at the difference between different um, groups in Vietnam and the debates that were taking place among central leaders in Vietnam and how that related to provinces. And so this, this creation of provinces, because it was ultimately a central level decision, gave me a lever to dig into that as well. So, so that sort of, so yeah, everything out of it, all the, basically most of the theory comes from my dissertation, but this is something that's kind of grown that I've just continued to work with trying to plug holes in where I thought there were some weaknesses in my original project. So it's called gerrymandering Vietnamese style, and that, um, that of course, is because there of these 24 new provinces that have been created. And as you can see, the, um, they're, they're, I mean, it really is, you can see it, it's all mapped up. And to some extent, it does look a little bit like gerrymandering, the way these things have been carved. And I'm going to talk a little bit about this as we go through. So... Um, the organization of the presentation today, I'm going to talk about provincial splitting in comparative perspective. Then I'm going to talk about previous explanations for the phenomenon in Vietnam that I would find unsatisfying. I'll talk about why. Then I'm going to talk about my theory of political gerrymanders, my theory, why I'm right, right? Um, I'm, going to talk, I'm going to give some initial evidence for gerrymandering. Um, this is kind of circumstantial evidence or advanced criminology, right? I'm going to kind of pull together some information that's floating out there and try and give you some reasons why I think this is worth of exploring. Then I'm going to explore it quantitatively with a relogit test, um, so a rare events logit test. And then finally, I think that for all of us who study developing countries, you never really can be satisfied with one test, I think, that really you have to continually pull more arrows out of your quiver and trying because data is never satisfying. So you have to try and solve it from different directions. So I'm going to talk about some other observable implications of my theory. 
So let me give you the sort of the background in, in Vietnam at the time was, um, so Vietnam is really interesting, has this really interesting situation in 2000. Well, actually, prior to 2000. How, how many of you have heard of the partial reform equilibrium, sort of Joel Hellman's theory, right? So this is this notion that early winners from economic reform, and his sort of shadow case for this was Russia. So early winners from economic reform, after they benefit from it, they can then block future reforms, right? So after they benefit from the early sequencing, then they block other ones that may hurt their entrenched interests, right? So in the case of Russia, this is, this is those who benefited from privatization but didn't want the trade liberalization or the price liberalization that would have put competition on their, on their companies. So this is the oligarchs in Russia. I mean, Vietnam had a different sort of partial reform equilibrium. And, there, and theirs was the state sector. So the state sector in bef Vietnam started its reform, with, with, which was called the Doi Moi economic reforms, in, um, in 1986. And at that time, the state sector was actually, the, the, so at this time, some 15,000 state-owned enterprises were big proponents of reform in Vietnam because they wanted, and so they were pushing for price liberalization and to some extent trade liberalization. And they, and they combined with farmers, sort of small-level farmers, who wanted to sell their products at market prices. So the first reforms you saw in Vietnam were price liberalization. Well, that, what that happened was that allowed state-owned enterprises to charge monopoly prices, and they, and they controlled monopoly access to trade. And so what they did was then use that to block other reforms that were coming up along the line, specifically reforms that would have benefited the private sector, the initial private sector in Vietnam, reforms that would have allowed for foreign direct investment. And so there was, and so there was a constant tension between those who wanted to push further with reform, so backers of the, the private sector in Vietnam, and the, and the big state sector that dominated the economy. So that was the tension. And so the, so the interesting question is that, that Joel Hellman never really explores, but has always sort of been my, my sort of passion is how do states get out of this? Because I don't really think, we, you, we see this constant movement towards reform, and so it's interesting to look at the political mechanisms that allow states to escape. And so we know that Vietnam escapes, because in 2000, from this partial reform, because in 2000 we see in Vietnam the enterprise law, which effectively puts the private sector on the same legal footing as the state sector. We see bankruptcy law, and we see competition law, which rein in the state sector. And then we see Vietnam finally pushing forward in its form of privatization, so, which they call equitization, um, and, and actually knocking off or so first merging state-owned companies together in large chaibals, but then finally selling them off and, and even putting some for sale on the stock market. So now, roughly in Vietnam, there's some only 2,000 state-owned enterprises left, and there really are a much weaker force. They're kind of... The death, um, the death bell has kind of been has been sounded for them. So that's interesting. Also, in 2001, you see a fascinating event that takes place, which is the Secretary General of the Communist Party is nominated by the Politburo um, to to repeat as the Secretary General of the Communist Party at a Central Committee meeting, right? But what happens is the Central Committee rejects that Secretary General. So in a sort of a democratic vote, the secretary general loses and they have to choose a new secretary general. So for the most part, I mean, there's some cases of this 
in the annals of sort of communist history, but this is really almost unprecedented. So why, and so the question is, how did the Central Committee, why did the, how did the constitution of the Central Committee change so much that you were able to actually, actually reject a standing Secretary General? And in the newspapers at the time, it was that he was conservative, that they wanted to push ahead with reforms, but that still gets back to the question, how were they able to reject a conservative Secretary General? All right. So, so these are the types, these are the two questions that I'm going to try and answer, and I'm going to try and answer it using this, this mechanism of gerrymandering. So the first thing I want to kind of show you is in comparative perspective where Vietnam stands is this is first-tier first subnational units in Vietnam. So, it's, so provinces or states or regions, if, they're, if, if you're, we're talking about Russia. And you can see that for, um, Vietnam has 64 units, which is really a large number given its population and size. And the median, su median subunit population... Uh, no, no, no problem. And the median subunit population is really small. I mean, it's really only Thailand is about that size. But what's really fascinating is that since 1990, Vietnam has created 24 new provinces. There's just nothing like this in, um, in sort of the amount of new provinces that have been created. And then it's at a time where scholars like John Melagrana are saying that there's an impulse for, for states to kind of consolidate subnational units. So, so Vietnam is truly an exception. And then the other two areas where we've seen um, large numbers of states, so Nigeria and Indonesia, what's the, the hypothesis that's been given here is this notion of ethno-nationalism, that you're breaking up states based on to, to be able to provide subunits to particular ethnicities, sort of an autonomy sort of movement. But in Vietnam, that, that's not at all the case because the Vietnam is 86% ethnic Vietnamese or ethnic king. So, so Vietnam is truly an exception here. And this is really, um, this is kind of an interesting, when you're talking to political scientists, the, the issue is always about generalizability, right? Is this theory generalizable? And, but but I, this paper, I don't have that intention at all of making a generalizable theory. But, because I think that sometimes it's useful to explore the outlier. And, and try and figure out why it's an outlier. I mean, in science, you can kind of toss off outliers as sort of white noise, sort of problems. But, but, in, but in, in this case, we're, ta we're talking about an outlier that impacts 80 million people and made political decisions. It's worthwhile explaining why it is that they got there and how it is that they've been creating these new provinces. So, and hopefully, what I'm hoping is um, maybe some of you know of some other historical, I'm always asking this question, other historical precedents, precedents of this type of rapid um, subnational unit creation without, um, without um, an ethnic motivation for doing it. Okay. So here are, this is, I don't know if you can, this is kind of hard to read. Um, I, I sent this out for review, and one of the reviewers, though he said a lot of nice things, told me that I have really ugly graphics. So <laughs> you guys are going to have to suffer from that. But the, this is the creation of provinces in Vietnam. And so it starts in 1988 with 40 units. In 1990, you see a creation. And so provinces usually split into two, sometimes are split into three units. In rare cases, a province is split again. So there was a province called Nam Ha, it was split into Ningbing and, um, 
so, yeah, or there was a province, it was called um, Ha Nam Ning. It was split into Nam Ha right here, Nam Ha Ning Bing, and then Nam Ha was eventually then split into Nam Ding and Ha Nam, right? So you get, um, so, and then, and this also happened with um, Bing Chi Tian was split also um, two times. So you see um, more, you see, sometimes you see separations of a province once it's already been separated, but it's usually pretty rare. The other thing is sometimes a separation is done to create what's called a national level city. So, so in here, if you look right here, Da Nang and Kanta, these were both separated from a larger unit and kind of called off to be just a, just to be just a metropolis. And the hinterland was separated from it, and then it got, and then it was promoted to the status of national level city. All right. So there's been several explanations for this provincial splitting. The first has been that um, it's just about governing capacity, that it's just easier for government officials to govern smaller provinces, either in terms of surface area or in terms of population. And there's actually um, there's some quotes from some of the central politicians that are making this decision to that effect, that this is about, um, that this is about capa capacity. So... Um, when Huchi of the Organization and Personal Affairs Board said, the big provinces and big districts model, which used to be suitable to the central planning economy, was not meaningful anymore. So that was the, that was the type of comment that was being made. And there's some others at different separations where those quotes are also repeated. But the thing is, is when you take a close look, it really doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Um, so Tanghua, which is the largest non-municipal province in terms of population, has never been separated. It continues to exist, even though it's clearly the largest by quite a wide range. And other provinces, like Lai Chou, um, which was the least populous province in 2004, was recently separated, right? So it can't be necessarily just about governing capacity. And then even when you take a, a closer look to try and, when, when you look at how they split the provinces, that also doesn't make sense from a governing capacity perspective. So, for example, Nye'an and Haizhuang possess over twice the population of their sister provinces, um, Hating and Hunyan. Or, and Hunyan itself has a surface area, after it was cut off, has a surface area of only 985 square kilometers, right? There are, nine, there are 14 provinces which have over nine times that size. So just, just by kind of looking through the data, this governing capacity doesn't seem to make sense because if it was really about governing capacity, they would be, gov they would be carving it up into manageable units that you could govern. So the second issue has to do... Um, oh. Actually, let me talk about this. So there's also a, sort of this a cultural explanation or a historical legacy explanation. And this is really fascinating. I, um, and it, the, what it has to do with is that a lot of these provinces have been cut back to the borders that they originally had under the French colonists, So um, and both in the north and the south. So, for example... Um, Vinh Phuc province and Futa province were separate provinces under the French administration, but then, um, but then after, um, but then were merged together after 1954, after after the French left, and so during this sort of this notion, there was sort of this Soviet notion of conglomeration building that had taken place over Vietnam. 
but then recently in 1997 they were split back again. Well, at least they were split back kind of to their original borders, but not exactly. That's really the funny thing, is that often the provinces have the same name, but not the exact same borders that they had before. But also, it's, all, but, um, it's interesting. This theory is interesting for a number of reasons, because, because once again, when you take a closer look, it really doesn't seem to hold up to scrutiny. Provinces like Long, Long An and Kuangning haven't been cut back to their French borders yet. Right? So we really don't know when and why you would move back to these old French borders. But also the notion of the French borders, the French provincial borders, doesn't make sense from, from sort of a Vietnamese historical perspective because there really has never been, in Vietnamese scholarship, any sort of notion of the province as a cultural unit. For Vietnam, it's always been about the village. The village is this holder of, of cultural knowledge. And so his, Vietnamese historians and forest, foreign historians studying Vietnam have always looked to the village. In fact, there's a proverb in Vietnam that goes, Phep vua tua le lang, right? Which is the king's laws bow before village gates, right? So, and, and the French, when they first came into Vietnam, recognized that. So one of their first strategies was to co-opt village elders as part of their, as part of their colonization strategy. So it can't be... It, the, the notion that there's some sort of cultural reason why you want to go back, why the people of Vinh Phuc province cannot be combined in, in, with the people of Phu Ta province really doesn't make a lot of sense for any, any real historical reasons. There's been political explanations, and so the first one is this notion of regional balance. Um, and this was that we want to, this is, this is kind of a fun argument. It's a lot like the Barry Weingast argument about states entering the Union. And this argument is that they wanted to always maintain northern provinces, um, more northern provinces than southern provinces, right? Because of obviously the two had fought a major nasty civil war. And since the cent major decisions were going to be made in the Central Committee, and leaders for the major leaders from Vietnam are chosen out of the Central Committee meetings, that you would want more northerners there. But that doesn't hold up to any scrutiny at all because there are actually more southern provinces than northern provinces, right? So originally they started off at about the same level in 1990 and now there are far more southern provinces than northern provinces. So that can't be true. It is true that when, when France colonized Vietnam, they, had, they divided Vietnam into three separate colonial units that were administered separately, um, Tonkin, Annam, and Cochin, China. And there, it is interesting that if you look at, if you look at those three regions, there is, there are more, Tonkin is the northern area around Hanoi. There are more provinces, the Tonkin region maintains an advantage over the other two regions. But, um, so that's interesting, but that argument has never been made, actually. And also, there's no reason to, most of the, most of the Vietnamese leaders that were making these decisions were from Annam. So it doesn't make a lot of sense that they would favor Tonkin over Annam anyway. The, Annam is the heartland of the Vietnamese Communist Revolution. This is Red Nye Ting. This is where Ho Chi Minh was born. And so, and a lot of, and even still today in Hanoi, 30% of Hanoi is made up of people who've, who've um, immigrated from those, that Annam, sort of the north central coast of Vietnam. Um, there, there, 
moving away from this sort of northern southern thing there's been some other other scholars have thrown out some political theories and these these are more i find them to be more interesting because they basically what they say is that that governing capacity and the original french borders um only are only sort of excuses they're only hooks and what's really going on is they they offer a nice um, a nice sort of ju- justification for political decisions that are being made. And the argument, the first sort of argument you saw from Zachary Abuza, who's a political scientist who studies Southeast Asia, was that these new these creation of the new provinces reps, represents the strengthening of provincial governments against the center, right? So you saw this proliferation of new provinces against the central government, but of course, this is a central government decision, usually always made at the National Assembly, right? So it doesn't, it can't, this notion that the provinces, provinces all of a sudden rose up and spontaneously became strong against the center also doesn't, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense if you're trying to look at how this political mechanism came to be, came about. So there, um, but the notion is that there were reformist leaders, sort of fans of the private sector, the Prime, um, Prime Minister Van Kiet and Witten Van Ling, that actually did this, were creating new provinces um, in order to bolster their strength in the Central Committee. And I find that argument a lot more appealing. But that only gets us partway there. They were trying to bolster their support in the Central Committee, but how did they get this by conservative leaders is the real question. How are they able to pull this off? And that, that mechanism isn't explained. Um, it's just sort of provinces, all of a sudden we got a lot more provinces and provinces were more powerful. Um, there's a counter argument to this that actually draws on the exact same evidence, almost the exact same quotes from the Vietnamese political debate. And they say, no, creating more provinces actually weakened them. Right? So if you had a lot more provinces, then it tore up their actual power. They didn't have as much, um, they didn't have as much financial strength or um, industrial strength to be able to argue. So, and, and there's that argument that's made. But that argument misses the political mechanism too, which is every time you create a new province in Vietnam, that province gets a vote on the Central Committee. Um, so, and um, I guess I should explain really quickly in 1986, when provinces were represented on the Central Committee, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with the political institutions of Vietnam because I know I'm just throwing out all these names and it's getting really confusing. So I have a little map to take you through the political institutions of Vietnam, and I will. But, but what I want you to keep in mind before we get there is, in, in 1986, provinces were only alternate members. They didn't have a true vote on the Central Committee. But then, beginning in 1990 with the Seventh Party Congress, provinces got full-fledged membership. That meant they actually had votes in the Central Committee. And every new province that's created thereafter gets a vote. And now, it's up to a province to decide who actually gets to represent them at Central Committee meetings. And there's some debate in provinces about that. And I'll show you how the provincial institutions break down so you can see who gets represented and who doesn't. All right, so here's my theory, okay? My theory is a theory of gerrymandering, good old American gerrymandering. And this is a quote from Bernie Groffman, actually not an academic paper. This is from testimony um, in 
in a case about gerrymandering in California. And he defined gerrymandering as fragmenting or submerging the voting strength of a group to great districts in which that group will constitute a near certain minority. All right? So what I saw, what I, when you look at, when you take a close look, and I'm going to show you this empirically, in Vietnam, what's actually happening is non-state sector, private sector provinces are being carved out of state sector dominated provinces. So in Vietnam, there was always, even under the most, the, even under the most conservative or strictest central planning, there was always a lot of private sector activity. So at, at the peak of central planning in the Soviet Union, some, I don't know, 60,000 commodities were being planned or something along those, I don't know, maybe, maybe more. Right? In Vietnam, you never had more than 3,000 commodities that were being planned. And there was always this loose planning where um, private firms that were active, sort of informal firms, made up for the gaps in the plan. That's the only way central planning worked in Vietnam. So as you started the reform process, the state sector actually only accounted for about 50% of GDP. The rest was all made up of the private sector, and it was... And, and the state sector province and state sector was concentrated in particular areas. Now it was concentrated, all it was concentrated in particular areas throughout the entire country because one of the ways that Vietnam had fought the war was through a very decentralized state sector system, and decentralizing their industrial productivity during the war with the French and then during the war with the U.S. So you see these clusters of state sector activity all throughout the country. But then when you see this provincial creation, what you then see is those clusters of state sector activity being carved out, so being shelved into some provinces while new private sector-dominated do provinces were being created. So, so that was the gerrymandering and, um, that you saw taking place. And so in Vietnam, so what, but, but then the question is, how did reform leaders like, um, Van Kiet and Nguyen Van Ling, how were they able to pull this off? And what, what, what I argue they were able to do was they were able to buy off conservative leaders, and basically buy them off one by one. Because every time you created a new province, you, there were lucrative opportunities for pork. There were construction contracts to build new government office buildings. There was infrastructure projects to be built. And all of those led to huge amounts of kickback potentials. And, so, and it allowed for possibilities for sort of patron-client relations between cabinet officials and provincial officials. So what happened is it was very easy for the reformers to, to carve up non-state-dominated provinces. But when they went after, so, so they could divide a non-state province in two and get two reformist votes. But it was very difficult for them to go after the provinces that had large state sectors. And to do that, they resorted to this targeting provinces which had leaders, which had compatriots that were represented in the cabinet. So that's what you saw happening. And I'm, I'm going to try and show you in, in more detail how that happened. But this, that's kind of my working theory and I'm going to go about showing you. But first, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page when it comes to Vietnamese political institutions. Because I've been throwing out all these names. And for those of you who aren't obviously not all that familiar with communist systems, it doesn't make any sense at all. So it, right in Vietnam, the Communist Party, it's a one-party state. There's no doubt about that. And the com everything runs through the Communist Party. And the two major Communist Party institutions are the Central Committee, 
which is what I've been talking about, this is where this representation is taking place. Central Committee is made up of some 135 members, and they include national leaders, and they include local provincial leaders. And then, and, th and from the Central Committee, there's a, a leadership group that's called the Politburo. So Vietnam is run to some extent by committee, by nine leaders which are selected every party Congress from the Central Committee. But there's, there's a clear relationship between the Politburo and the Central Committee. The, the, peop the members of the Politburo have to be elected from the Central Committee. Um, so you have a Secretary General of the Communist Party, as I talked about before. Um, going into the Party Congress in 2001, it was Lake Kai-Fu. He was rejected. Now we have Nong Duc Mai was chosen. He had the reputation of being a reformer. Um, he also was able to garner some conservative votes because there's a, a rumor that he was the illegitimate son of Ho Chi Minh. That, um, and, and he never, he's actually very clever, he never denies that. Actually, he always just says that, um, of course, Ho Chi Minh was my father. He was the father of the entire country, right? So, good politician. Um, then, then you have an executive, and that executive is the prime minister. And so, um, Phan Van Kai is the prime minister now. And the prime minister is in charge of all the line ministries. So, the Ministry of Industry, the Ministry of Agriculture, the Ministry of Construction. And then you have a legislator a national that's a national assembly. For the most part, for most of Vietnamese history, has been pretty much a rubber stamp. Um, but it's become more powerful of late, mostly because Nong Duc Mine came from the National Assembly. He used to be the Speaker of the National Assembly. Um, there's, al there's also a president um, that's also, that usually serves on the Politburo as well. And that, that president doesn't have a lot of constitutional power but um, traditionally the president has come from the military and has support from the military, so has, um, so has some sort of informal power. So um, the old school of Vietnamese scholarship has always talked about a troika of leadership at the central level, so a division of power between the secretary general, the prime minister, and the president. And so and Kremlinology always dealt with who happened to be more powerful at any given time, right? So you would so if the so in, in the, if you were doing Kremlinology, it was the prime minister that visited the U.S. recently. So you would say the prime minister is the most powerful because he got to make the important trip to the U.S. That's that so and that's that's the way Vietnamese scholarship has usually been. So now each of these central institutions is then represented again at the provincial level. So from the Communist Party, you have a provincial party secretary. For at the, for among the, from the executive side, you have the departments of line ministries. So for every ministry of industry in each province, there's a department of industry or a department of planning investment. Um, you also have a local executive called a provincial people's committee. And then you have a, a local rubber stamp legislature called the provincial people's council. So they're all represented this way. Um, now, state-owned enterprises, there's two types of state-owned enterprises in Vietnam, so this can get confusing. There's central state-owned enterprises. Those are managed by the line ministries, and then there's local state-owned enterprises that are managed by the provinces. So initially, the first wave of privatizations in Vietnam were of these local state-owned enterprises because the provincial com people's committees couldn't really afford to keep them running. So you saw th these were these local ones were um, were liquidated relatively quickly. Then um, the central SOE still exists, but what happened with them is they were put into large conglomerates. 
But by central, I don't mean they're just in Hanoi. They're spread out throughout the country. They're just owned by a line ministry. And that's really where this power mechanism lays. They, they really were the true winners from economic reform. All right. Now, in terms of election to the central committee, each province gets to choose one person. So except for Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City, the two big cities, they get to choose two. So each province gets to choose one representative. They either choose the provincial party secretary or they choose the provincial people's committee. And it usually, um, so you, there's, you, you have a, it's about 60-40, it's about 60% provincial party secretaries and about 40% provincial people's committees, member, um, chairman. Usually when it's a provincial people's committee chairman, it's, it's usually one of the more reformist provinces. Um, and there's some reasons we could probably talk about that in the question and answer period why that is. Some provinces, the divisions are so strong between the party and the provincial people's committee chairman, even though everybody's a member of the party nominally, they're sort of the debates about institutional responsibilities are so strong that they haven't been able to nominate anybody to the central committee because they couldn't agree. So Ha Ting and Dak Lok province don't have anybody represented on the central committee. And it's not – they have a space sitting there for them, but they just can't decide on who's going to be nominated. Actually, let me – are there any questions about this before I move on? Cause the, that is the, – each province has every year a, a party congress of – or every four years a party congress of its own. So the, the party congress in Vietnam is going to take place this year in 2006 but all the party congresses in the province took place in 2005. So we already know, in this case, who's going to represent the provinces. Yeah. All right, so now I'm going to talk about my circumstantial evidence for this gerrymandering theory. So the first is that the separations always take place, coincide with major debates over the role of state-owned enterprises. So they're always, first of all, they're always within two years of a party congress. So, and second, if you look there, the, as I said, usually these have, these have been done in the National Assembly after it has been requested at a central committee meeting, but it, usually the decision has been made in, a national assembly, in, in the National Assembly after a major debate about the role of state-owned enterprises. So there's some sort of reason to believe, and I'll show you in just a second, there's some, there's some temporal trade-offs being made, right? You, I'll, I'll concede to this with state, the state sector if you give me um, a few provincial separations. There's a non, um, okay, the number of non-state provinces increases dramatically. I'll show you that. And then I'm going to show you the funky gerrymander-like borders that carve out SOE centers. Um, so that's sort of the pictorial evidence. And finally, I'm going to show you some anecdotal evidence of how separations happened after people reached the cabinet level in Vietnam. All right, so here, so here are the different, these are the five splits. And you, okay, so the first one is in 1989. And this first separation, the first separation took place after the state sector gained con full control of the management of import-export activities. So this is where they gained their monopoly over import-export activities. And then you saw the first series of provincial trade-offs. So it was a clear loss to the reformers, at least in terms of the law, but they got a few provinces out of it. The second, the second one took place 
um, when the 1992 Constitution was written, the draft amendments to the 19, 1992 Constitution, that was, the second, that was when the second one took place. And that was really interesting because that enshrined the role of the state sector. There's actually a quote in the Constitution that says that the state sector will be the nentang or the leading role or play the leading role in the Vietnamese economy. So the private sector, we first see the word for private company in Vietnam in that 1992 constitution, but that's where the, it's enshrined the, enshrined the role of the state sector. So once again, you see a loss to the reformers, um, but, you see this, but you see new provinces created. All right, then Decree 388 is the establishment of the dissolution of the state-owned enterprises. So this is where the, the first equitization law is passed um, to move forward with privatization of Vietnam. So this appears on the face value to be a victory for the reformers, but it, you don't actually see any state sector equitization until 1995. So, all right. And then finally, later on, with, you see when, coinciding with the fourth and the fifth are clear victories for the reformers. So the first is the law on foreign investment and the promulgation on legal documents. This, this was what really, um, this was allow, what allowed 100% foreign investment in Vietnam. This was what allowed joint ventures between foreign companies and private sector companies rather than just foreign companies in the state sector. And then finally, um, with the final separation, that came out with reforms in the land and housing law, which allowed private companies to distribute land and houses, right? So this is sort of, this was, there had already been a land law where private companies had land, had, could have land use rights certificates, but here they could actually, basically, this created a market for those land use rights certificates, the side of the beginning of a market for property rights in Vietnam. All right, so there's my first set of circumstantial evidence, is that you see all of these are taking place within one or two years of a central committee meeting, and all are taking place at the exact same time as major debates are in the state sector are taking place. So you kind of get this notion that there's some intertemporal trade-offs being made. But you don't see victories for the reformers until late in the 90s. All right. So my second piece of circumstantial evidence is this. So the blue line here is the non-state dominated provinces and the red line is the state dominated provinces. And so you can see that you get this clear increase of provinces that are dominated by the non-state sector beginning in about 1996. So early on when you were creating new provinces, the state sector provinces were ahead for just a little bit. Then they were even and then you see this clear rapid movement towards more, more and more non-state dexter dominated provinces. And so the, the, like the standard argument that could be made is that, um, the standard argument that could be made is that this, this really has to do with overall change in the Vietnamese economy. But it's not because the state sector actually in its total percentage of GDP of the country never really changes, right? So at, at the heaviest part, at the, in the heaviest centrally planned system was about 50%. When the reforms first took place and you cleared out a lot of the local state-owned enterprises, it dropped to 32%, but the central state-owned enterprises picked up productivity, actually increased productivity, and then it's about, we're pretty much floating around 40% for the rest of the 90s, even up to today, right? So the size of the state sector has never changed. It's just the distribution of the provinces and where the state sector is, okay? So that's... Um, 
so, yeah, that, I mean, which is kind of convincing evidence that something is going on here that's not just pure economic reform. How do you define state uh, domination? Yeah, so um, what I did is the percentage of industrial output of the state sector is how I define it. So above or below 50 percent? Above or below 50 percent. But I also played with um, – that also starts to – like if, um, if I do above or below 60 percent – it's it's not quite different. I think, in fact, in the paper, I actually list out the size of the state sector right after the separation. So it's it's actually clear domination. There's clear divisions. So in this in this graph, it's 50 percent, but 60 percent, it would have been just a little bit different. Um, but I used it's it's a really good question. I wanted to actually take the size of the state sector in the entire provincial GDP, but there's not very good measures at the provincial level of state output in the service sector or state output in the agricultural sector. So, okay, but let's go to the fun one now. So, all right. So here is, this is Ving Fu province, right? So as I said before, this used to be two separate provinces um, um, under the French. You had Ving Fu and Fu Ta, right? And they were divided pretty much right on the right-hand side of Viet Chi, which was the capital of that province, okay? So under so they were combined together during the central planning period in Vietnam, and then a lot of state sector investments were made in Viet Chi. In fact, this was Viet Chi was one of the principal areas of Vietnam's first five-year plan. So you saw a major paper mill being set up there, a major cement area being set up there. So, and that's and also that's it was on the Phu Tall side, so the the left-hand side of the graph where most of the infrastructure was. So this is the split that you got in 1997, and um, everybody thought that the leaders of Vinh Phuc province would, were going to scream bloody murder about this because Viet Chi had expanded a lot under the central planning period. So it had actually grown right into an area of Vinh Phuc, and then, but then it, when they carved it out, they carved around Viet Chi so that... Um, so that Vinh Phuc did, didn't get any of the economic benefit of that industrial town. And in fact, Vinh Phuc had no industrial town at all because the other major industrial town was Phu Tha town at the time. So everybody sort of thought that Vinh Phuc was going to scream bloody murder. Here, I'll show you. Look, this you can see this nasty, they just cut around Viet Chi. So that entire area was given to Phu Tha province. They could have cut it right down the middle and left some sort of industrial output to to um, Vinh Phuc, but they didn't at all. And those are predominantly central state-owned enterprises, so we're not relying on Provincial People's Committee management to do that. It was, they're managed by the central government. It's just a matter of output here. So what happened is Vinh Phuc then went on to be one of the major reformist provinces because it had to rely on the private sector. And here's sort of, this is an, an interesting um, one of, the reason why this this mechanism seems to stick is because of the way the financial system works in Vietnam. Vietnam has a a tax system that's China circa 1994. So provinces have um, targets which are set. Um, they're kind of set randomly, so biannually, sometimes annually. And any time a province beats its finance target, it gets to keep that excess revenue. So what happens for a province is it, it tends to favor the sector 
which it's t- well, it tends to milk the cow that it has in the province, right? So if because you can take that excess revenue and pump it back into social programs, pump it back into infrastructure in your province. So if you have a dominant state sector, you tend to favor the state sector. But if you've been cut off, you tend to favor the private sector in your policies. And that carries up to the national level. You tend to defend the sector which is going to bring home the bacon for you at the national level. So that's sort of... so. There's this real clear question about the reformers were creating new provinces, but was it enforceable? And the thing was, at least from their perspective, it was self-enforcing. If you just cut it off and you left a province with only the private sector to generate revenue, that province was going to have to rely on the private sector and going to have to take policy stances that would benefit the private sector. All right. So then the final little bit of anecdotal evidence so is that you see central leaders openly supporting divisions, right? So I told you there was this, the first part of my theory is that reformers were creating new provinces. The second part of my theory is that they were also buying off state-owned leaders. That who would, who, because of course, conservative leaders who benefited from the state sector and who wanted to see the sector, state sector continue aren't really stupid, right? They can see what's going on. They can see that the composition of the Central Committee is changing and they can see that they're losing votes. So the question is then why do they support it? And, and as I said, they support it because of all the kickbacks and benefits that come with the creation of a new province and your own independent patronage channel, right? And so what you see at the national level is these, is these central leaders in the cabinet and the Politburo clearly supporting reform. Um, so Fang Tung, the Minister of Construction, makes a big speech about the support of Bing Chi Tian. And Danang and Bakning are new provinces that are only created after the Eighth Party Congress. And that is after you see their leaders, Fan Van Chan, Fan Zian, rise to the level of the Politburo. So you can kind of see that this central mechanism, at least anecdotally, there seems to be some support for it. All right, but I actually want to explore this more formally. So what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to use this rare events logit model. So this is a statistical model. Some of you may know from Gary King and Mike Toms. And it's, it's like a, a normal logistic model in that we can generate marginal probabilities. But it, um, but it deals with the problem that I have, I'm looking at provinces over time in Vietnam. So I'm looking over a 14-year period. Um, and so, and the, while I have 24 separations, 24 over over 14 years is actually it's pretty. It's it is a rare event, and even though it's you know more frequent than anywhere else in the world, it's a rare event over time in Vietnam. And so there's some issues is that you can get inflated standard errors, and so this rare events logit model actually corrects for the standard errors. So you um, so so that's the model I use to deal with this. My dependent variable is a dichotomous measure of whether a, a province was split between 1989 and 2004. So, and the, once it's split, that newly created province becomes a new unit in subsequent years, right? So the, these panels are unbalanced. So you kind of enter my system after a split. And, and as I said, I think it's an interaction. My key causal variable is this interaction between the state sector and the share of provincial output. Because I don't think, um, and the, the state sector share of provincial output and the number of provincial compatriots represented in Hanoi on the Vietnamese cabinet, and by cabinet I mean all the, all the heads of 
the ministries plus the Politburo. So I'm looking at all central leaders there because what I think is being, I think central leaders are being bought off. And what I think is happening is the more central leaders you have from a given province, the more likely you are to see a split because central leaders are competing over patronage channels back to their province. So if you get a split, you get an independent patronage channel and you get to say, I created you, I gave you, you got all these, all this new buildings, all this new infrastructure, all this money flowed in there. Um, so actually, let me, I want to drive this one home. When you create a new province, there is a lot of money to be made in Vietnam and in, in, a, in several ways. So the first one is construction contracts, always the, the price that's, um, that's budded, budgeted for construction is actually always much, is always over, much over the, the actual cost of the material. So to, um, to build a square kilometer of road in Vietnam costs almost as much as to build a square kilometer of road in Japan. So, so there's a lot of money to be made here. There's also a lot of money to be made in land. Vietnam has had, has had for the past few years a large land bubble going on. So, and the most valuable land in Vietnam is land where new infrastructure is going to be built. So if you happen to own that, if you happen to own a piece of land and then all of a sudden, coincidentally, a road is built and your house is adjacent to that, or you happen to own land adjacent to that major road, all of a sudden you have very, very valuable market land that you could very easily sell off. And so it is not uncommon for provincial leaders in the know to buy up land where infrastructure is going to be built and then sell it right after it's built. So you get this sort of benefit too. So I'm looking at that interaction between number of cabinet officials and the size of the state sector. And then I'm going to I'm not controlling for pollution. That's my spell check run amok. I'm controlling for population. <laughs> Surface area, um, years since the party congress, share of agriculture in the provinces. I, I have a dummy variable for whether the province has already been split because I think it's less likely to be split once it's already been split. And I have a dummy variable measuring whether the province is at the 1954 borders. And... Um, I have regional dummies, so in this particular one that I'm going to show you, I'm running Tonkin, but I also ran one with the South to, to test the theory of whether northern provinces are benefited over the South. And then I, I also test some alternative theories. This is the percentage of ethnic minorities, whether you share these – are, these are alternative theories that others have mentioned to me since I started presenting this paper, so I want to give those a fair fight. So the percentage of ethnic minorities in Vietnam – whether the province shares a born with, border with a foreign country, because would, you would think it would be less likely to be split. You might want to keep your thumb on provinces that are national security-wise, and then per capita GDP. Um, so now I want to – so you can see just – so I run – this is the, a rule of three – Right. This is I don't I don't know if you guys for probit models. There's this argument that you shouldn't run any more than three variables in it because you really don't know what's happening with the interactions when you run any more than three variables in a probit model. So I just wanted to show you with the rule of the three, this interaction is is significant. Right. Now I'm gonna now what I want to do is. And I should say that I don't expect either one of these to be significant on its own. I don't, expect the sh I don't expect the share to be significant on its own, and I don't expect the number of cabinet officials to be significant on its own, because I think that non-state sector provinces, you didn't need to resort to this mechanism. You could e very easily divide up non-state provinces without having to buy off central officials. All right. 
So, so in model one, I have all of these other conditions that I was talking about. So whether the province was previously split, whether it's already at its 1954 borders. I have a variable for years after the party congress, right? So I think the farther you get, I think it's a political mechanism and I want to show that. So I think the farther you are from the party congress, the, the, um, the less likely you are. And then population and surface area also are significant. But as I said, yeah, yeah. Is this hard to read? Or, yeah. Okay, so, um, so as I said, I, um, I really don't think, what, what I think is going on is I think that the political mechanism is right, and it tends to be small, but the coefficient is also pretty small. But what I think the coefficient and the, and the percentage of very explained by that interaction is pretty small. So what I think is happening is that provinces are being targeted be based on this, you target provinces that can be easily justified, right? So you target a province that, for the most part, that you have some excuse, whether it's a French border, whether it's a large population. But I think the ultimate goal is political goals. So what, I, what I'll do later on is I'll experiment by holding the other variables at different levels and showing and looking at that interaction closer. First, I wanted just to show you, just discuss some of the marginal probabilities of the controls. So, so moving from the 25th percentile population to the 75th increases the probability of separation by 4.2%. Moving from the 25th percentile of surface area to the 75th increases the probability of separation by 6.6%. All right, so, and this is years after the Cardi Congress and whether it's at the French borders, and you can see the closer you are to the Party Congress and, and not being at your, at your original French borders, that's the most likely, and it kind of slides down. If you're already at your French borders, you're very unlikely to be split. So there's, and, and I think this has to do, as I said, with more political justification, because I can't think of any theoretical justification for it. And then, um, and then as you move away from the Party Congress, you're much less likely to be see splits. All right, let's get to the, my variable. So at ideal structural separation conditions, a move from the mean to the 75th percentile of the SOE cabinet interaction increases the probability of separation by 36%. And that means I held all the other variables at the 75th percentile, and it was not at its French borders. So, right? so large provinces, both population and surface area, and ones that were not at their French borders, um, if you hold them at that level, then, you're, then the interaction explains, um, increases the probability of separation by 36%, but what the heck does that mean? A simultaneous shift in state sector and cabinet officials. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna map it out in, so graphically, so you can kind of see. So what I've done here is this line, so on the, on the horizontal axis, we have state contribution to provincial output. This is the predicted probability of separation all the, all the covariates are held at the 75th percentile. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at, this is if there are no, no people, no compatriots from the province in the cabinet. This is if you only have one member, and this is if there were overlapping patronage channels, right? So what you can see is as the state sector increases, as the size of the state sector increases, you're very unlikely to see splits in provinces that don't have compatriots at the central level. But, and, and you have a positive slope if you have one member. So you can buy off one member. But your best option is if you've got overlapping patronage channels. Those are the ones that are being targeted. So if the, as the state sector increases, 
and you've got overlapping patronage channels with more than one cabinet official to that province, they want their own, they want their own kickbacks. They want to keep them themselves, and so that's where you're more likely to see separation. All right, but let me just, I'm going to run through these quickly. As I said, you can never be convinced, right? I don't think that you can ever be convinced in development very much when you, because the data is always messed up, and especially in Vietnam, it's a black box. Nobody ever tells me what they talk about at the Central Committee meetings. So, um, so what I want to look for is some evidence that um, of two different types of, of so let me, let me put it this way. If, I, if I'm right that you're trying to create votes for the private sector at the central level, we should see evidence of private sector orientation in provincial level policies, right? And if I'm right that you're buying off provinces, we should see shifts of trans, we should see large shares of transfers to the newly created provinces. So those are my other observable implications that I'm gonna look for. And so I use this thing called the Vietnam Provincial Competitiveness Index, which is this ranking of the investment environment for the private sector in all of Vietnam's provinces, um, which I like to think is pretty scientifically created because I played some role in creating it. So, um, and so four of the six provinces with the best investment environments for the private sector, four of the top were non-state dominated provinces created by provincial separations. The other two were non-state provinces throughout the sample. They were Dong Nai and Quang Nang. And there's no, there, these provinces are not all from the, some are from the north and some are from the south. We're not all concentrated around Saigon. So, and the average score for non-state provinces is significantly higher than state-dominated provinces on the private se sector investment. And then finally, um, Wen Van Tang, who's an economist at National Economics University in Hanoi, kind of verifies this, that looking at provinces, the density of SOEs in the province has a negative impact on the private sector's access to key resources and a negative influence on private sector growth in terms of finance and employment. And that's in terms of banking, bank finance. But then, so that's, so yeah, we do see exactly what we would expect. We see that the provinces that were created this way tend to favor the private sector. And then secondly, do we see large transfers? Absolutely. Split provinces receive 8.2% of GDP in government investment contracts. Non-split provinces only receive 4.6%. New provinces with compatriots serving in the cabinet receive even more, 9% of their provincial GDP in government investment contracts. And the numbers are even starker when we look at transfers, not just investment contracts, but actual transfers. Split provinces receive 13%. Non-split provinces receive 9%, and new provinces with compatriots serving in the cabinet receive 15% of GDP and provincial transfers. So there is, seems to be clear evidence of this buy-off going on to the new, newly created provinces. The government investment contracts, part of that is certainly you have to build new government office buildings, but the transfers are just transfers. And there's no reason to expect that you would change your transfers for um, in, in Vietnam, these are transfers for environmental and health programs that are block grants. There's no reason why you would change those as the composition of the province changes. All right. I'm talking about the chunks. Yeah. So the, if you the were individual the individual chunks, so they both increase, but the ones that have 13%. yeah, 13 percent. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's huge difference. Yeah. So, which makes me think I'm right. <laughs> It's always nice to, to be right, right? So, um, so the, but I wanted to leave you with, so this was kind of fun 
Um, but I wanted to kind of end with some larger questions, right? I, I think that our, what, in political science, our understanding of um, what we call, what we kind of all lump into authoritarian regimes is, is very limited. We don't really have any sort of understanding. We, we have very refined measures for the way we study democracy and participation in institutions of democracy, but the way we look at authoritarian regimes is, is very blunt. I think Barbara Geddes has done the best job with this, but even then she just basically names authoritarian regimes, like military, personalistic, but we don't have any real way to get inside and look at what's actually happening in terms of representation. And so it's interesting when you see something that looks very much like representation in an authoritarian system, when you see, when you actually see something that looks like gerrymandering. So the question is, and I've been, um, a reviewer called me on this line, but I had this, maybe it was rhetorical, but I said gerrymandering is often um, sort of a negative side effect of a functioning democracy. So when you see it in an authoritarian system, you should really ask what's happening, right? And I and I think that's a, that's a question that's worth asking. And then, and so I'll just leave it up to you. We can probably discuss that. And the second question is, what do we make of gerrymandering and its policy implications in a one-party state, right? And I think, for me, I think the predictions are pretty clear. I think that the reformers have won this battle, and I think Vietnam is going to continue. We're going to see more and more reforms, like the flurry of reforms we saw in, 2000, in 2001. In fact, I think we already are. Vietnam just had what's called the Unified Enterprise and the Unified Investment Law, which now basically put the foreign, private, and state sector completely on the same legal footing. So the, the Viet, right now, the Vietnamese investment law is actually um, sort of more beneficial to, the, to foreign investors than the, France, the French investment regime, at least, in terms, at least in terms of legal scholarship. So I think that's the direction that we're going in, and I think it has a lot to do with this gerrymandering mechanism. All right. Yeah, sure. I'd love to take questions. Yeah, so this is, there's actually been a lot of work on this, on this question. Because the state sector has continued to grow or at least stabilized over the reform period, there was some question about whether states, the state sector was more productive than the private sector. And if, if, you just, if it's just sort of a cost-benefit analysis, it, it does appear that the state sector is more productive. But when you factor in that the state sector doesn't have to purchase land, Right, and they have they have access to land, and then they can sell off their land use rights certificates they just inherited from the central planning regime, and they have beneficial access to bank loans. Once those sorts of costs that are once those costs are equalized across the two sectors, the state sector actually appears to be much less productive than the private sector. And I think clearly that the weakness of the state sector was the reason that Vietnam waited so long to sign the bilateral trade agreement with the U.S. So Clinton really wanted the bilateral trade agreement um, beginning, the negotiation started in 1996. He wanted it kind of as sort of a pinnacle of his presidency. And there was a, the Vietnamese state sector blocked it and blocked it for several years, and it didn't happen until the very end of his term. 
in 2000. So, and, and it had a lot to do with protecting the state sector. But now, um, but now, as I said, so, and that was when the state sector was still relatively strong. N now I don't think, now Vietnam is basically begging to get in the WTO. And, the, um, and mostly because now what's a large portion of the, where, where Vietnam thinks it, the productive sectors where Vietnam thinks it can gain, food processing and textiles are private sector dominated industries. Yeah, Tim. Two, two questions. One, um, just, uh, I want to push you a little bit on uh, the optimistic scenarios the reformers have won and it's just going to keep going. Um. It seems all premised on the notion that the, you, the private sector will go quick enough that it can buy off the, the state-owned sector. So you, you know, one could imagine some exogenous shocks where this is not built on you know, a consensus that these are the right policies and the interests have all lined up. Um, but that it is really premised on really dynamic private sector growth. Yeah. Um, which might be the China story, too, but there might be some comparative um, analogies here. Um, the, the, the other question I have is more theoretical about you've done a good job describing the bargain, and I'm convinced on you know, the kind of static you know, trade offs that were made, but you know, there are commitment issues right. here where the old state sector um, representative. Uh, they get bought off once. Why do they stay bought off if they see their, you know, the future down the road probably is not going to be um, uh, 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 bright, given that they, they have already diluted their voting strength. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, why does the private sector, um, why is it convincing to the state-owned sector that the private sector is going to keep making the transfer payments to the state-owned sector? So why, you know, the, uh, this eternal question of, Buy somebody off. Why do they stay bought off? Right. And why? When is, you know? Why is the compensation credible? Particularly that we're talking about an authoritarian regime here. So it's not like people can just go to the you know, Supreme Court and say, ah, you know, but yeah, you know, this, this policy says that we have to get these benefits over time. So yeah, those are thought about that at all. Um, well, the first question, I, they're both really fantastic, hard questions, right? The, the first one, the exogenous shock, that that's interesting. Um, and I think you you might be right. In fact, there's a lot of argument that what propelled this the quick movement to the private sector was an exogen was the Asian financial crisis in '97 because that hurt um, Vietnam didn't have a convertible currency, but basically 70% of its foreign investment and 60% of its exports were to the other to the affected Southeast Asian countries, and so they had to very quickly figure out how to develop their private sector. So you did see policy shifts that benefited the private sector as a result of the crisis. I think there's no doubt about that. And, and I, I imagine something like that could could happen again. So I, I, I take your point on that. That's probably – and just move in the opposite direction. These The questions about the trade-offs, right? One of the reasons why I try and highlight this notion of an intertemporal trade-off is because I do think that – they're, they were buying off the state sector, but they were also giving them some policies until they dominated the until it was until they already dominated the central committee. So you didn't actually see them winning major policy fights until they already had a preponderance of the votes. But there is a there really is there's an uh, there's another question here that I I haven't thought hard enough about and keeps me up at night, which is why um, how do like. There's this sort of self-enforcing mechanism for the private provinces, but the um, 
but but I also assume that the state sector provinces are going to continue to be um, are going to continue to be non-reformist because they're dominated by the state sector. But I, I also imagine, and I don't really deal well enough with the strength of their relationship to the cabinet official. I haven't, and and also whether they are seeing the private sector dominated provinces benefit and whether they may push. Like I don't I don't deal with this sort of flipping, and and. Um, um, and I also, you're right. In this, what happens? What happens in this situation if the private sector doesn't continue to to allow for beating your revenue target? Where then are we going to go? But, but it's it's a question I really can't I can't answer very well because the state sector has pretty much disappeared in those provinces, right? What was left? What was left of the rump state sector didn't receive any funding. Or, and didn't receive any benefits in terms of policy and pretty much died out. So there's not, there couldn't really be a recourse back to the, to the state sector in those cases. Yeah, you're right. I know. I, I definitely. It's a good point. I need to think a lot harder about that. Sarah. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, I mean, so that's a, that's a great point. The only, the only problem is that the debates in the newspaper almost always take the lines of policy debates, right? And you have to read very carefully between the lines to figure out the, the payoff. So it really does look like the reformers are making policy arguments. But, um, but then, because you don't, see, you don't see evidence in the news, in sort of newspaper debates of the buying off. You only see it in the financial flows, right? Yeah, so the, so the most recent debate was about the enterprise law and the investment law. So they, the, invest, the enterprise law is about registration, and the investment law is about investment incentives, right? And so what they did was they divided it up. So they gave the enterprise law to um, kind of like the Vietnamese version of the Council of Economic Advisors. And they gave the investment law, the investment incentives law, to the Ministry of Planning and Investment, kind of a conservative institution. And the enterprise law passed very quickly through the National Assembly it was, and was lauded by all sorts of um, international observers because of its free market appeal. The investment law was universally hated by every foreigner and by every private company, and some people referred to it as the Rent Seekers Protection Act, right, because you would have to... It, um, because there were all these different steps along the way to be able to get your investment incentive and all these payoffs that you would have to make to government officials along the way. And so, and finally what they did, th there was a compromise that was reached but it, um, in that, on that level, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a policy compromise. It was a, 
they, uh, they got the... So, I mean, there was a compromise initially to divide them. So the reformers got theirs, and then the conservatives got to hold on to their, their birthday cake. But then, and then the compromise that finally got the investment law through was that they just cut the nodes to get your investment licenses in half. Right? That's so... Yeah, so I, I don't know. I guess I need to think more about it. But at least there wasn't much persuasion on that, on that particular point. It was, it was a clear... It was a clear buy-off. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's another word familiar from democracy besides gerrymandering, which is boondoggle. Mm. Uh, to what degree is this, uh, are, are the officials essentially profiting from this uh, very enterprise? You know, that they're able to create things and then buy land or be in a position to uh, either they or their cronies or buddies yeah. profit from it. Yeah, it's very clear that they, they're profiting from it in a major way. I, I think this is... Well, see, the thing is that both are happening simultaneously, right? So we're seeing the, we're seeing the reforms and we're seeing officials benefit in large ways from it. And I think that they're related. I think if the officials didn't benefit in huge amounts... And so recently one of these officials that is from a province that was newly created just was um, arrested for betting over $5 million in the, in, in the championships... on championships, championship league games from... Soccer, I mean, five million dollars, <laughs> right? So, I mean, there's there's some serious money that's that's flowing around because of this, and it, you can't separate that. But I, I don't think if it wasn't for that money, the mechanism that I ta- I'm talking about wouldn't work. It's they come they're they're part and parcel. So, and the question is, is this corruption that's that's taking place? Is it so nasty that it's going to outweigh the impact of the reforms? Right? Is the is the high-level corruption so problematic it's going to crowd out all the benefits of the reforms? And, yeah, I think that's a good question. I, and I, I really don't... In the limit, you would see 130 provinces then, right? So that ultimately all the people who are in the, the central committee, uh, the minute they get their own product, right. that would be the only motivation for it, right? Yeah, that's... Yeah, there must be some constraint. You're right. Um, there, there, that is a possibility. There, there, that, so like say the party secretary from a particular province also argues for the separation. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that absolutely happens. So, but I think it's what, what you have to look for is, is their relationship to a cabinet official. So it's not, it's not them independently calling for it. So, so what will happen is, um, so the, the party secretary will call for the creation, the separation of a province in the central committee. It's well, actually, it's not usually the party secretary that calls for it. It's usually the vice party secretary, right? Because the vice party secretary knows that if a new province is created, he's going to be the head of the new province, 
right? So it's usually it's usually that. And the vice party secretary is better bolstered to do that if he has a compatriot at the central level that supports that argument. So it's this it's the it's an interface between the two. So I, I do the, the local level incentives are part of the story, but they can only get it because ultimately it's a ultimately ends up being a central level decision.